reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 2 and reading verses 1 to 5. And I invite your hearing and faith, the word of God, from here in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us are acquainted with the reality that at every level of life, uh, we're surrounded by assumptions. The government makes assumptions about economics or weather or whatever. We also do that at a personal level. We make assumptions. We assume that, say we're going to go to the store, and we assume that we're going to return. Again, just simply my position that life is surrounded by assumptions. However, having said that, uh, presuming on God and heaven can be very, very dangerous. Especially uh, when there's no need to, since uh, God tells us in Scripture uh, about how to know Him and how to get to heaven. And therefore, we should always challenge our assumptions uh, with uh, the Word of God, the Scriptures that God has given to us. And this morning, there is a lesson about Jewish presumption of their acceptance with God based on their identity. And Paul's going to condemn them for their assumptions and their presumptions. Has a broader, I think, application to all religion. But here, Paul is assaulting uh, his countrymen, the Jews. Uh, The context of where we are in Romans is uh, the righteousness of God as the entire basis of our justification because the whole world is condemned. That's really Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. The condemnation of the whole world. The Gentile world in Paul's day, but the religious world of the Jewish faith in Paul's day. And having established the condemnation of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, again, now Paul picks up with his own countrymen. And all of their religious practices, all of their presumption about the ceremonial law. And so it is, again, I think by application, a challenge for us to test our religious assumptions uh, to the Word of God. And what does Paul say about his countrymen with all of their religion that they're condemned to? They presume, what, that they're better than the Gentiles. They were the sons of Abraham. They had a covenant with God. They were the curators of the law and the prophets. 
But Paul was going to demolish all of these uh, assumptions that have become really presumptions, and he will make them the same as the godless Gentiles, the idolatrous Gentiles that they really despised. Paul's going to equate them uh, with the same sin of the Gentiles. And again, it's a reminder for us that we don't really need to presume about God. Uh, We can always test our assumptions against the Scripture, and this is where the children of Israel are failing. Uh, Because we deal with people that make presumptions of their superiority throughout all of life. They assume they're better because of a better education, or they have a more refined, better religion. Again, uh, Paul is going to make us all equal before God by condemning us all. There are no distinctions. Jews are idolatrous and Gentiles are idolatrous. He is condemned. Uh, Paul is an equal opportunity condemner of all men without distinction and without exception. Uh, Of course, I do remind you that God has provided justification uh, only in his son, uh, but this is the subject matter of Romans chapter 4 through 8. Currently, we're dealing with the condemnation of the whole world. Everyone. No one is left out. Well, in verses 1 to 5, Jewish presumption about their superiority to the Gentiles is totally negated. Uh, The Bible says, if you look at verse 1, every man of you is without excuse. By the way, he said the same thing respecting the Gentiles. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. So that they are without excuse. Excuse. Uh, the word excuse is a forensic term. It's a legal term. It's a term that comes out of the, uh, out of the courtroom. Um, it means that they have no defense before God. Uh, a court is assembled. It's the court in heaven. And all of mankind has no excuse before God. And thus, the words of the Apostle Paul, they're all uh, without excuse. And a reason is stated here uh, in the text respecting uh, the Jews. Uh, why has heaven rejected their, rejected their case? Uh, because they're idolatrous just like the Gentiles. Uh, judging others, he says, you condemn yourselves. Contextually, why are they judging others? Because those stinking, rotten Gentiles were idolaters. And uh, Paul says, you're guilty of the same crime before God. Uh, The Jews again condemned uh, Gentile idolatry, and Paul's going to turn that into a boomerang and lay that at their feet. Uh, By the way, let's remind ourselves of that from... Uh, the 23rd verse of the first chapter, respecting the Gentiles, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images. All the different forms, all the different things we worship. But they're idolaters too. Uh, And this is established in verses 2 to 3. First, Paul begins by saying that uh, the judgment of God is, is true. Um, so he's bringing to them the very word of God uh, to judge them just as he has judged the Gentiles. Uh, 
the Word of God is true. I'm reminded of a very common uh, idol today of uh, human spirituality. So, called a friend of mine recently uh, when I learned of the passing away of his older brother. And I spoke to him about church. He said, Phil, you don't need to worry about me. I'm the most spiritual person you could ever imagine. Problem with that is, is test it with the scripture. Where does it say in scripture that spirituality gets you uh, into God's courtroom? You can look all you want, high and low, east to west, and never find it. The only thing that will get you into God's courtroom is the legal acts of his son and the doctrine of justification. But sadly, my friend knew nothing of that. He is just presuming on his spirituality. And that is very dangerous when it comes to God in heaven and eternity. But the point of the truth of Scripture never permits us uh, to self-define our spirituality. That's why we have the Word of God. Uh, there's no need to presume or assume because God leaves us a written record of how to know Him and how to go to heaven. And the truth here respecting the Jews is they're practicing the same thing as they accuse the Gentiles of. Again, this uh, it's very interesting. Um, this phrase, the same things or such things as the Gentiles, is used three times in the first three of the verses of this chapter. Again, Paul, if you will, is forming a boomerang that they think they are throwing that's going to come back and fall at their feet because he's going to charge them with the serious sin of idolatry as well. Uh, we know from biblical theology that the nation was idolatrous. Uh, great record of this in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where Paul commissioned, pardon me, God commissions the prophet to go to the nations. It's very interesting that this condemnation of Israel of idolatry from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 is found in each one of the Gospels, as well as concluding the Apostle Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, meaning that he's tagging them with the sin of idolatry. And that's why in Acts, Paul turns to the Gentiles. But let's document this further. Turn with me, if you would, in your New Testaments to uh, Acts uh, chapter 7, verse 39. This is the sermon of Stephen. And he says uh, to the nation of Israel, to those who are listening to his sermon, and our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the golden calf incident in the Old Testament as an illustration that their hearts had never left Egypt. Physically they had left, but spiritually their hearts were still in Egypt as expressed in the worship of the golden calf. They left an idolatrous nation, but they never really left it. They reinstituted idolatry themselves in this very serious incident of the golden calf. Another illustration of this, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 7, 
uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, Jesus uh, says to the religious uh, rulers, um, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. In other words, in the contemporary days of our Savior, they had vaulted their religious traditions over the Word of God. Very common practice today, by the way. You go to different religious ceremonies and you see traditions that are not found anywhere in the Scriptures. But men presume upon those traditions as a way to heaven. I went to a funeral, uh, mentioned a friend earlier, I went to graveside service for this older brother that really had no church connection whatsoever, had no confession of faith whatsoever. It was a retired Roman Catholic priest who was conducting the graveside service. And so part of his religious tradition was to take some holy water and to pour it around the casket thinking, holy water? How do you get holy water out here? Well, he told us how. He wanted us to make sure that we knew that the water was holy and it's somehow or way that that holy water was going to make, I guess, the casket and its inhabitant holy to perhaps to enter him into purgatory. So I'm sitting here thinking, the problem with that holy water is it's in one of these plastic Nestle's water bottles. How did he make that holy? Of course, I'm just still on the turnip truck, but, but again, you, you ask yourself, why make that assumption about how to escape purgatory through holy water when the scripture makes no mention of it whatsoever in its entirety? Why presume something when the scriptures are clear as to how to get to heaven? and have a relationship with God throughout all eternity. Again, uh, just a reminder that we, we do the same thing as the Jews, just like they do the same thing as the Gentiles. We vault our religious traditions above the Word of God. And that's very dangerous, because assumptions become presumptions that will someday meet God. And if they're not found in Scripture, they will be totally dispelled. We don't need to assume, because God tells us in the Scriptures. Another illustration of this, I was reading a number of months ago in the Wall Street Journal about contemporary Orthodox Judaism. Uh, I was in Manhattan reading this article about uh, a line that the Jewish rabbis string around Manhattan and they do that so that uh, because they have a, a legal tradition of not working on the Sabbath, uh, and sometimes uh, mothers need to uh, push perambulators with their children, and that's work, they created a way of safety by running this line all the way around the city of Manhattan in some strange way. So that within that boundary, the mother could work and yet not work. Now, if you can figure that out, you're 
you're smarter than me. But every morning, a Jewish rabbi awakens and makes sure that that line is intact throughout the city. That no uh, electrical contractor has broken it or torn it down. Uh, No windstorm has torn it down. Now I would commend to you, if someone's safety and hope is in a line strung by men, perhaps they should test that assumption in the Scriptures. And I will tell you this Eruv line, it's a technical name by which they call it, is found nowhere in the Bible. It's a clear expression and example of taking a religious tradition, vaulting it over Scripture, and making it a place of hope and safety. Why do we need to do that when God is clear in the Word of God? A key identification in our text in Romans, identifying the idolatry of the nation, uh, is, uh, is in the word, verse 5, their stubbornness. Uh, uh, this word is used in Exodus uh, chapter 32, uh, going all the way back to the golden calf incident. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 9, uh, a reminder that something radical happened to them when they began to worship the golden hat calf. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 32 and verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they are an obstinate people. The Hebrew text is literally they are stiff-necked. Think about it. What has a stiff neck? The idol that they made. It was a metal molten idol that had a stiff neck. What God is telling Moses about his countrymen is they are becoming like the golden calf that they worship. The utter transformation of worshiping the wrong God uh, becomes transformational. Uh, This uh, phrase is picked up again in Exodus uh, 33, uh, verse 3, uh, to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people or stiff-necked. Verse 5, the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people or you are stiff-necked. In other words, the transformation into becoming like the idol of the golden calf has been implemented in their spiritual lives. The danger of religious presumption and worshiping false traditions. And we have many idols today. And I I don't know what they are. Uh, Careers. uh, The Apostle Paul says greed is an idol. Um, Secularism. We could go on and on. Uh, But many people presume that their religion is their safety. In the case of the invasion of Israel, there was no safety whatsoever. uh, Because there is no escaping the wrath of God that comes upon idolaters. Uh, Exactly uh, the the language that uh, Paul uses in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Uh, In their idolatry, they're storing up for themselves the wrath of God uh, that takes everyone, that no one is excluded. Until we get to the good news of Romans chapter 4, throughout 
chapter 8. Reminded of a military incident, uh, history, the Anglo-Zulu Wars, uh, the British commander, uh, South Africa, assumed uh, that the Zulus were bad soldiers. Um, he paid no attention to his own battlefield intelligence. Uh, he did something that's a total violation of uh, command principles. He divided his command, separated his command, so that he's going to piecemeal uh, his soldiers into battle. Uh, he introduced a convoluted command and control system so that 20, when 24,000 Zulus attacked roughly about a battalion and a half of British soldiers, they totally wiped them out. None were left, none escaped. The Zulus killed everything. Even the animals that pulled their supply trains to the battlefield. Why? Because of a bad assumption. Something of an illustration, I think, of bad assumptions transferred into the religious realm when we don't need to assume because God has left us the record of Scripture. And with God, no one outside of His Son will escape His wrath. All will be taken. That's why religious assumptions are very dangerous. Secondly, uh, there's, their presumption is manifested in that uh, they think little of the riches of God. Verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness of God? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, he's asking his countrymen. The rhetorical question is, is, yes, indeed, they think lightly of the riches of God. Uh, the self-evident answer is that they despise the riches of God. Uh, to remind ourselves of the riches of God. Romans 11, uh, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgment and His ways. The depth of the riches of God. No boundaries to the majesty of the riches of God that they're despising. Uh, this language used again of the Apostle Paul uh, in the church at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of the calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. They're despising that, invaulting their religious tradition above the riches of the grace and kindness and forbearance of God. Uh, that's how Paul begins to define the riches of God. Uh, uses the word kindness. Uh, think of the majesty of the words of the Apostle Paul, Titus chapter 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of our religious tradition or all of our religious works, but because of the gift of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Not in anything that we had done in righteousness, because we could do nothing in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the kindness of the riches of the grace of God that his countrymen are despising. Uh, the next thing that uh, they, they despise is God's forbearance, which is a delay or temporary reprieve from punishment. 
They're saying we don't we don't need God's forbearance. Uh, we're desperate for God's forbearance, for not just temporary reprieve, but eternal reprieve. And that's what we get in Jesus Christ. And patience, they despise the patience of God, which is literally long or slow of wrath. They're saying the wrath of God doesn't apply to them because of all of their Jewish presumption. Uh, Think about it, uh, they continued to believe in the validity of the ceremonial law. Problem with that, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ fulfilled and put an end to the ceremonial law. It all collapses upon Him, never to be repeated again. We don't need to sacrifice bulls and goats because Christ is our sacrifice. By the way, let me remind you of some religious presumption that I always befuddles me. You, you go to churches in different traditions, and I don't mean to belittle anything, but sometimes uh, you see men and women bow before the altar, cross themselves before an altar. The problem with that is there's no longer an altar. The altar has been done away with in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't have an altar up here. It's a communion table. I, I profoundly appreciate and respect the sentiment. It's good sentiment. They want to bow before an altar. But again, if you think about the book of Hebrews, Christ is no longer sacrificed. I uh, quote to you the favorite words of John Murray, a very famous Presbyterian theologian. You do not repeat perfection. Christ was a perfect sacrifice. To repeat that sacrifice on a presumed altar is almost, almost a work of incredible sacrilege. And so while I respect the sentiment, I totally disregard it. My altar was fulfilled by Jesus Christ who ransomed Himself the one for the many. And that sacrifice is no longer to be repeated out of utter respect for the dignity of the eternal Son of God who sacrificed Himself one time for all time, never to be repeated. Religious tradition just simply presumed as a way of respect for something that uh, should not be given uh, to a table. And so they're presuming all of that, trusting in these religious traditions, ignorant of the kindness and goodness of God. But again, Scriptures are very clear that faith is uh, turning to Christ uh, in the gifts of God. Let's remind ourselves of that with respect to the early tradition of much of the Jewish church in the book of Acts. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 31. It's a text we looked at a number of uh, months ago. Uh, Peter's been preaching a measure of revival. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Uh, he is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as he is a prince and a savior. Notice what our Savior does to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. It's one of the reasons I always trouble over the concept of a priesthood in which the priest forgives sin. 
only Christ forgives sin. He grants in His grace forgiveness of sin. You make the presumption that a human priest can do that. Perhaps you are terribly errant because only Christ can grant the forgiveness of sin. And so, uh, Paul is excoriating his uh, countrymen uh, because they've turned back to their ancient idols in Egypt uh, and they become stiff-necked and obstinate. And they should uh, turn uh, to God from their idols. Beautiful illustration of a particular church in the New Testament that has done just that. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Uh, reminded that I think, and again, forgive me if I'm making a terrible presumption, that much of professing Christianity needs to turn from its traditions to the living God and faith in Him who alone can give repentance and faith and who does just that for His sons. It's a reminder that we do not need to assume or presume. God makes it clear in Scripture. And so of all of these gifts, they're saying we don't, we don't need any of these things. We have our religious traditions. Uh, we have our own ways. And in their own ways, they think they will escape the wrath of God. Let's look again at Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Because of this, your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Storing up wrath in their unrepentant hearts. Um, this word storing up is a, uh, it's a banking term. Um, it's a word that you use every time you make out a deposit slip and you transfer your paycheck or your allowance to a bank. You're storing up for yourselves uh, your own money to be held by an institution. Um, obviously metaphorical here. But when you think little of God and you exalt your religious traditions above His Word, you are depositing wrath in God's storehouse of wrath that will one day break as a great dam and consume all who are idolaters. Because one day, that wrath must be withdrawn. When you deposit money, you do so thinking that one day you can draw it out. When you exalt your human religious traditions above the Word of God, you're depositing wrath. And one day, it has to be withdrawn. Thank God that uh, there's still time to turn from our idols to serve the living and true God. Of course, the day of wrath is it's a present event, but it's also a future event. And that day, it will all be withdrawn and break upon all idolaters, whether Gentile or Jews. Or, in terms of application, all false religions in the world who place their presumption in religious actions that are not mentioned in the Word of God. 
The day of wrath and the day of the revelation of His righteous judgments is like a dam. And like the Gentiles, the Jews are spiritually building a dam from this massive reservoir of divine anger. And eventually it will give way. Of course, vast majority of people assume that there is no God. There is no judgment. But God says otherwise in the Scriptures. Uh, think, of, think of the majesty that He has displayed to each of us who know His Son, His precious Savior. We will escape wrath. Because that wrath fell upon His Son. Was vented totally against His Son. Paid totally by His Son that we might be free of the riches of the grace of God in life everlasting. It's the point of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7. But the present heaven and earth by His Word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But our Savior took that wrath upon Himself for us. Clearly defined in Scripture, why presume when you can simply believe upon the Son and escape that terrible day of the venting of the wrath of God? But again, the broader application beyond the Jews in Paul's day is really for all religious people. Most people keep a scorecard. The problem is... Uh, God is more likely than not not to accept your own scorecard. Be very careful about keeping your own scorecard when the record is plain in the Word of God. Most people think they are good. But that's not the question. Are they good enough? That's what plagued Martin Luther. And Luther knew he was good, but what terrorized him as was he good enough and only God is good and only Christ is good enough a sacrifice of infinite value to meet all of the demands of the judgment of God why presume when you have that clear message in all of the scripture many people say I've been baptized some religious traditions uh, baptism washes away original sin I beg to differ only the blood of Christ can wash away original sin. Again, crowning a presumption, as I mentioned earlier, is we feel good about our own spirituality. Nowhere to be found in Scripture. None of this matters for eternity. And there are no excuses. Parents can't save. Church cannot save. Human priests cannot save. The sacramental system cannot save. Only Christ can save. Only Christ. Remind you of the words of Luke in the book of Acts. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. No other name. You don't have to make a presumption about what your priest can and cannot do for you. Luke tells you in that single verse, only His name. The only provision is the provision of God. Men who are under con condemnation cannot save themselves, but God in His grace provides a Savior, a Redeemer, 
It's divine. And it's outworking in our life is clearly explained in the Scripture. So again, prevailing, prevailing question for you. Why assume when the Bible tells you about salvation in the Son only, by the Son only, and nowhere else can it be found? We should know this. That's why when it comes to calling ourselves Christians, we don't have to assume or presume or trust religious tradition. The Scripture is clear. Let's turn to John chapter 6. We should know. And we should know because God has left us a clear record in the Scripture. John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. What's to assume? That's the promise of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He loses none. He will raise up all His own on the last day. No need to assume anything. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep are my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of the hand of my Father. I and the Father are one. You don't need to assume anything. That's the answer to way to heaven. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. A very clear text of this end is John chapter 20. In verse 31. Very clear reference that you don't need to assume or presume anything. These things have been written, John says, in the Scriptures where we test our assumptions and dispel them all. The clear record that God has given to us in His very Word. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Assume nothing but Jesus. Make no presumptions whatsoever but Jesus. And in Him, there is life and promise everlasting in His name, and only His name. The heck with assumptions. We have the right name. And may God bless us with His name alone.